Good morning, everyone. We are here at Office Hours after an incredible week of filming of Two Minute Drill. So I'm off about 12 episodes in the studio. Here we are 5 a.m. on the West Coast, and we have incredible co-host Dave Marino and my boy Mike, Mar Mike Marino, Mike Mamola, a lot of M's <laughs> today. But I am so excited to have Dr. Londa Wright. She is an incredible orthopedic surgeon, author, and speaker. Uh, and, you know, Dr. Wright, it's such a pleasure to have you here on Office Hours. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Ah, honors are all ours. I really love talking to orthopedic surgeons because when I was in college, I was pre-med. Mom wanted me to be pre-med. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I didn't realize uh, that doctors had to be in hospitals. So I wanted to be what I called a sports doctor. And uh, I told my brother as I visited him um, at his residency in the hospital, I said, Hey man, you know, I hate hospitals. That's why I want to be a sports doctor. And, and he, he almost fell over. He, he's like, and, and why, why that's so interesting is one, he gave me the best piece of advice in my life, which was David, you need to be more interested than interesting. Uh, and, you know, learn about what you want uh, by actually asking people who sit in the situation that you want to be in. Uh, and I think as far as being an orthopedic surgeon, a lot of people romanticize uh, what that is like, yeah. uh, just like they do being a sports agent, which Dave Marino knows what that's like. And I've been coaching him for years. End up being a sports agent. Uh, yeah. But moreover, um, it takes a lot, a lot to be an orthopedic surgeon. You know, when and in what age did you realize what it was going to take and if it was later on in life, if you knew what it was going to take, would you do it again? Yeah, I love that question. You know, fortunately, uh, I was raised by two parents with incredible work ethics. So my entire life, I've witnessed and watched what it takes to get to a goal. And then um, I did not decide to go back to medical school until I was 28 and then had then decided to go into orthopedic surgery, which is 12 more years. So I emerged from this training process from which my parents are like, are you ever going to get out of school? You know, at 40 and have really had to make up time quickly. And I think I've done that in my career, but um, I agree with you. Sometimes people romanticize what it means to be a sports surgeon, right? We do get to be on the field with some of the best um, hardest working people in the world. It is amazing when you're standing on the field and 110,000 fans are screaming. But to your point, it's a ton of hard work and there's a daily grind just like there is in sports management and all the details matter. Would I do it again? You know what? Absolutely. Where else could I be surrounded by people who are committed to excellence and perfection. Like there is no middle ground. You are either working hard enough to be good or you're not playing at all, right? Mm -hmm. And that inspires me. Do Would I want to spend my entire youth until I was 40 in school training? I don't know, that's a different question. But now that I've arrived, absolutely. I love that. And uh, this this pod, this, this segment is for everyone that calls Dave Meltzer and I and says, I want a job in sports. And then the next question out of our mouth is, okay, what do you like? What are your competencies? They're like, no, I just want to be in sports. So obviously 
Dr. Wright has put in the time, right, and, and, and gotten the, the competency as an orthopedic surgeon and just happens to focus on the field of sports. I think that's an important fact that we should think of. So I come from the school of thought, and I know Dave does as well, that the best ability in sports is obviously availability. Um, and we've seen the story so many, so many times uh, that this championship is tainted because it was an in injury-prone playoffs, like, for example, the, the, the Lakers in the bubble two years ago. But that's just a part of sports. So I'm really interested in discussing Prima, uh, the performance and research initiative for Masters athletes uh, that both maximizes performance and minimizes injury. That, to me, is, like, mind-blowing. How do we do that? How do we maximize performance while minimizing injury at the same time? Because Normally, when you overtrain to maximize performance, you lead to injury. So I'm, I'm really interested to, to hear you talk about that. Well, you know what? My entire field of research, in addition to hip arthroscopy, which I, I do a lot of, but has been in musculoskeletal aging because there's a myth out there that aging is this decline from vitality to frailty and that people just give up and cop out to the number of birthday candles on their cake. So whether you are a in the pro uh performance league or whether you're a mere mortal like me just trying to live more in every moment we have to be smart right so your contention that people think more is better is actually incorrect even professional athletes do just not don't just grind away thoughtlessly everything is planned so when we talk about maximizing performance minimizing injury it's doing the right thing at the right time in the right amount, right? And sometimes we don't know how to do that. So sometimes for mere mortals like me, it takes hiring some, hiring an expert for the pros. They're surrounded by experts, but for adult uh, athletes and exercisers, it is not just doing more reps. I mean, I think uh, um, lots of athletes in their thirties and forties are smarter about the way they train. So what does that mean? We have to be concerned about flexibility. Our bodies stiffen up with age. It's just a fact of nature. We have to address that, whether we're a pro or a mere mortal. We have to do the right kind and the right amount of um, aerobic exercise. We have to carry a load. I do not call it weightlifting. I do not call it only Olympic lifting. We need to, to do functional body weight things to train the little muscles that are actually stabilizing us. And then finally, the fourth component, no matter who you are, you need to focus on your balance. So frankly, we don't trip and fall over and injure ourselves that way. So it's a smarter approach to the things that pros do all the time. Good morning, doctor. I just, I, I'm hoping that you'll endorse rather than condemn this, but I just turned 50. And as part of my 50th birthday present to myself, I hired one of the best breakdancing instructors on the planet to start teaching me. And I've been down on the ground building my core strength, flexibility, and speed. So I get what you're saying with regard to that, that weight, right? That body distribution, that balance, really important. Um, my question is, I've spent a, a career as a plaintiff's personal injury trial attorney, spent a lot of time with orthopedic surgeons, so intimately familiar, just really hold you guys in such high regard. And so do all of the patients that come out just saying, man, they, they really, that doctor walks on water. They put me back, not just in the game, but back into life. Like, right. really, if you, you know, if somebody can't get out of bed, mm -hmm. they can't get out of bed and spend Christmas with their family. The, the mental and psychological impact that that has on a person is devastating. And for people like you to be able to make them get out of bed or, or make them win a championship is just supernatural. So congratulations. Mm -hmm. My question is, 
after the 12 years of prep, how do you, how do you, what, what's the pregame for you? Because we speak to some of these UFC fighters and others, and we, I'd like to know how they prepare for the fight. How do you prepare for this? Because this is two, three, five, six hours on your feet, intense. Uh-huh. How do you prepare physically, emotionally, psychologically for, for going into sur- surgery? I love that because you may be the first person that's ever asked me for my pregame plan, right? I'm giving you two checks for that, Mike. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and um, just like just like people you deal with all the time, surgeons have to be in the zone. Right. And we got to get in that clutch situation. And there's this buildup. I love that you asked this. So for me, I, on the outside, I try to stay as physically fit and strong as I can, right? Orthopedics is a physical sport, if you will. Um, so in fact, I just, I'm about to turn 55 and I just went and had my body composition and I had my the um, O2 max tested and I'm about to have my mo- my motion analysis to know where my physical deficits are. We have to know where we are to know where we're going. So I, I keep fit. I practice smart nutrition, right? I, I'm an athlete, right? I'm an OR athlete. So I have to be mindful of what I eat. The day before uh, the big game, the, my surgery day, we go over all the records of all the patients. I pre-game plan. It's just like sitting in a room watching film, right? I'm not watching film. I've done this a long time, but I know each and everything I'm going to do to every patient. Then when I get there in the morning to the OR, there's a routine, right? I show up at the same time. I do the same process through the pre-op area, greet my patients, talk to the nurses, go to the room, make sure all my equipment's there. This should sound pretty familiar to those of you that set up athletes for the big game, right? And then you're there and I pause and I remind my staff that for this patient, this is the Super Bowl. Each and every one of us must be playing at the top of our game, whether you're a special teams, you're the anesthesiologist beyond the curtain, right? I really treat it like for this patient, this is their big game. And so I don't really care what's happening in the lives of my staff as long as for this patient, they're in the zone. And then we can help our staff with whatever other things they're dealing with, right? I didn't mean to say that in a rude way, but you get what I mean, that it's a total mindset and flow because I need to concentrate for all those hours. Right. So that's how I do it. I love it. And and Dr. Wright, uh, you know, I'm writing a new book called reconciliation. And one of the reconciliations that I'm dealing with is what your book is about in the guide to thrive, where we optimize performance, which takes, you know, usually an obsessive compulsive individual, uh, who has persistence and consistency and drive, I always say the desire to be what they must be. But then you have to somehow temper or reconcile that with this minimize the destructive injuries that occur. And, and this isn't just with you know the multiple athletes that I dealt with when I ran Lee Steinberg and Sports One Marketing. And of course, today with David and, and Mike, but it really, I see it in myself at 53 years old, 10 years older than you, uh, you know, I see it with executives more uh, that, you know, it's more obvious the injuries when they're short term, when you get hit in the knee or the shoulder or the hip, uh, when you're playing or practicing compared to sitting for, you know, 22 years Mm -hmm. uh, with your shoulders in a kyphosis position or, you know, or other things that can, you know, maximize the injuries. 
So what do we do for those people that are, isn't a parent that have a greater tendency to optimize performance, but they have no idea how to minimize the injuries in daily chronic behavior? Well, you know, in the book that you mentioned, it really is a business plan, if you will, for your health. I, you know, lots of people play on everything, their life, their business, their neighbor's life. You know, we're planning everything. None of us plan our health. So in that book, we lay out what our goals are, how to take action, how to assess where we've been, and then how to reward ourselves. It's a business plan, except applied to health. But when we're talking about high performance in the boardroom, I approach it in the same way as high performance on the ball field, right? And you're right. What we do repetitively is what we get out of it. So if we're sitting like this for a dozen years and our core is getting weak and our shoulders, that not only affects how much pain, how much low back pain we're having, it's going to affect our concentration. So for executives who are trying to stay at the top of their game, I recommend doing it, A, by planning. Make a strategic plan for your health. And here's the thing. Don't kill yourself because you have no motivation, right? Motivation is not some like fairy dust that drives on us. If we are not motivated to optimize our health, then we must rely on our discipline. We're not always going to feel like getting up, doing aerobics, making sure we're stretched out. But because we're disciplined, work-driven people, we add it to our calendar. Just like we're going to have a board meeting, we're going to have a board meeting with our body. Because that's the biggest barrier. We get up and we don't feel like taking care of ourselves. Something always takes precedence. And if you ask me one thing uh, that the executives can do that are listening, you have to know that your own physical health is worth the daily investment. Just like your daily investment in your business. If you are not taking care of this body, you are your mind is not going to function as well. You are not going to make the decisions you need to meet. And frankly... I doubt you're going to perform at work at a level that you want to. And the ROI on taking care of yourself is huge. And that's why I have this, you know, you asked me, Mike, what my pregame plan is. It's the same thing for executives. How are you going to take care of the vessel that you use to do your business? Powerful stuff. Well, uh, Dr. Wright, we appreciate you. Where can people find the book? You know what? All of my books are on Amazon. You can find out more about my work at my website, Dr. Vonda Wright. It's Dr. Vonda Wright. And if you really want to dig deep and work with me on your performance, we do executive performance physicals here in my new office in Lake Nona, Florida. So come on down. We're happy to see you. I'll be down before I get injured next time. <laughs> I get injured yes. annually. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's because Dave's a street baller. He's a three on three challenge champion. Yeah. So I can't. Yeah. I can't give it up. He's only got his. He's only got his six foot nine that can't dunk. <laughs> <laughs> at least I thank have, you, doctor. At least I have an excuse. I'm five seven. Uh, incredible, doctor. Wright. you come back and join us again. Thank you so much for allowing us to leverage what you've learned for all those years into the most important thing: our health. As I always say, if you're healthy, you get as many wishes as you want. Wishes are the greatest asset we have in life. Uh, and if you're unhealthy, you only have one wish. So thank you for giving so many wishes to so many people. It's my pleasure. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank Thanks, you. Doctor. You have no excuse, Dave. Danica's dunking at your height. Actually, left than your height. Yeah, she is. How tall was... Exactly. Um, All right. Who, who we was have, 
Spud Webb was five seven, Spud five Webb. six, Thank maybe. Wow. Yeah, he won the slam dunk competence for those young people out there that have no idea, like Jakey Bakey, who these people are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, what a stick shift is. Or Anyways, okay. <laughs> stop making me feel older than I am. First, Doctor Wright looks so young, and she's older than I am, and she looks so young at fifty five. Now, Jakey Bakey doesn't know what a stick shift is. Uh, anyway. Uh, we have the founder and CEO of EcoFashion. Uh, to me, one of the greatest renaissance that's occurring. I see it. We were in Portugal together. I don't remember at the meetup, guys, when we were so many sustainable fashion companies and uh, understanding what EcoFashion is. Uh, Marsha, uh, it's, it's early here, Marcy. Give me a little bit of a slack at 5 a.m., uh, but I'm also a name butcher anyway. And she is creating the eco-renaissance uh, when it comes to fashion and has written a book as well about the eco-renaissance. Welcome to Office Hours. Wow, thank you. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning, Marcy. <laughs> Probably not you know, as early for you. I mean, not as early for me as you, it sounds like, but yeah. still uh, after, after a big night out last night, I'm still drinking my coffee. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's all relative to when you go to sleep. That's why, most importantly, I have a unwinding routine. Um, I was curious as a serial entrepreneur that you are, how you evolved into, uh, you know, the kind of sustainable uh, vertical that you're in today. And what skills are you utilizing through that journey uh, to effectuate what will be global change? Yeah, well, I started my career in organic and natural food, which is how a lot of people start their own journey into being more conscious. They start thinking about what they're putting in their body. And I discovered uh, back in the early 90s through uh, my mentor, who was the founder of Aveda. So he was doing what I was doing in food. He was doing in beauty products and teaching people that you're not just what you put in your body, you're what you put on your body. And then that had I had another epiphany after that, that when you start to talk about lifestyle and making choices, that once you plant that seed of consciousness, it inevitably grows and people say, what else? What's next? What more? And in 1995, I actually coined and trademarked the term eco-fashion. And back then, people thought I was crazy that no one would ever buy into that idea that people who were into fashion were not the same people who were into environmental awareness and social justice and, you know, being more conscious about climate change. And I said, wait a minute, I'm that person. And I got best dressed in high school, my big fashion background. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but I always loved fashion and I was eating a healthy lifestyle and using clean beauty. And I said, wait, you know, how do I roll my sleeves up and build a movement? And so I've been pioneering the sustainable fashion movement for the past 25 plus years, created for fans um, along the way. And now it's game on. Everybody in the industry is finally drinking the proverbial sustainability Kool-Aid. And, you know, I'm getting propelled far and fast and it's exciting. A little bit of be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, uh, Marcy. Uh, good morning. I think that's great. You're also looking at a fellow best dressed high schooler. Uh, oh. care about <laughs> Dave Meltzer. Yeah. Oh boy. Uh, Dave Meltzer, maybe. Dave Meltzer was a jock. So he probably just wore his Letterman jacket every day. Um, no, I, I, but, I was the pink, the pink polo with op pants. So I wasn't winning. Oh, really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but. Yeah, so fashion, obviously, it's an industry that over the years has had a really, really poor history when it comes to sustainability and eco footprint and everything from, you know, the furs and high fashion and those sorts of things. And I started to learn about eco fashion more recently when I learned about the, the footprints that some of the most basic items uh, take to make. 
Uh, and I think it opened my eyes because I learned that. I'm like, wow, I should really start to think about this differently. Can you walk us through a little bit about uh, that footprint? Because I think it's important yeah. for folks to understand what it takes to make some of the things they wear and to start thinking about things differently and they'll gravitate more towards sustainability in, in companies like yours. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, what people don't realize is that a garment can change hands some, sometimes as much as seven to 10 times in a supply chain. So starting with the fiber. So first of all, Cotton is one of the most heavily sprayed industries in agriculture with the worst and most toxic chemicals. Then you have it chlorine bleached. It ends up in the dyeing and printing where oftentimes formaldehyde, heavy metals, acetones, all kinds of really toxic chemicals are added in the processing of cotton. And here we walk around saying cotton is natural fiber, right? We're wearing T-shirts and jeans and sweatshirts and bed sheets and towels and robes. I mean, the third of the world's textiles are cotton. Then you look mm. at, you know, polyesters and all the synthetic garments that are out there. Well, no synthetic in the history of mankind, you're talking 60, 70 years of production, has ever biodegraded. So all that happens when we make textiles out of synthetics is it sheds little microfibers in our washing machines, which go into our rivers, which go into our oceans, which are now destroying our ocean ecosystem. So we have land issues. We have ocean issues because of textiles. The textile industry is actually contributing, and you'll hear different statistics, but anywhere from, you know, depending if you include transportation and agriculture, as much as 10% of the world's carbon footprint is coming out of the factory. And then you look at 5% of the world's landfills or textile waste, 20% of the world's freshwater pollution is coming out of textile treatment and dyeing. So the impacts across, you know, energy, water, waste, uh, climate change, social justice, and chemical use are all the magnitude and multitude of chemicals are pretty significant. So, you know, we've been walking around, as I said earlier, talking about food and, you know, people are more aware now. 83% of Americans are buying organic food, at least occasionally, you know, buying it in places like Costco and Walmart and Target and, right. And yet no one stopped to think that, you know, a third of the population is walking around with asthma and allergies and skin conditions, psoriasis mm -hmm. and eczema and, and all kinds of things. And no one stops to think, well, wait a minute, we're wearing textiles 24-7 and our skin is the largest organ in our bodies and our primary organ for absorption, right? And so when you really start to pull the curtain back and unveil the human and environmental impacts of fashion as we know it, it just is a very destructive industry and actually one of the leading causes of air and water pollution, second to coal. That, you know, that's exactly what I, I wanted to touch on, Marcy, is with regard not only to the planet, but individuals, what are, in terms of uh, the textiles themselves, what are the ones that you've found over time better, worse? Like, what should people be doing in terms of personal health, global health? Yeah, if we're talking about health and wellness, I mean, I happen to be a soil junkie, right? Like, I'm always about connecting agriculture to popular culture, right? And I'm a big into, you know, organic and regenerative agriculture, right? So I look at, you know, how do we use cotton as a solution to climate change, not just as part of the problem. It's not about doing less bad. It's about doing more good. And so, you know, you've got 570 million farmers around the world growing, you know, different crops in agriculture, cotton being such an important crop. How do we now look at instead of just cotton and do it back in the day when people were saying milk is a natural, we know now unless it's organic, if you pull the curtain back, you see steroids, antibiotics and all the factory farming and regular conventional dairy. Same thing with conventional cotton. How do we now transform the cotton industry to be more organic, more regenerative, more sustainable? as a, a very important fiber, not in term, not just in terms of 
the wellness of our planet and soil health, building strong soil to then capture carbon out of the atmosphere, but also against our skin, as I said can earlier. I, can I ask a quick follow-up, Dave? Sure. Martin, oh. uh, Dave, know, can I ask a quick follow-up? Okay. Sorry, what? Did you both ask questions yeah. at the same time. Uh, Marcy, I wanted to just, just a quick follow-up on that, what you said with regard to cotton. Where does hemp fit into all of this? Yeah. Because, yeah, I, where does hemp fit in? Yeah. So there are a couple other fibers that I'm a big fan of, and there's a lot of innovation happening right now, too, by the way. Um, so hemp is a great fiber in agriculture. There's a lot of, you know, kind of it's coming full circle. When I started there you know, over 25 years ago, you know, the stigma that came with organic, sustainable fashion was crunchy, frumpy, boxy, beige, boring, you know, potato sack. Can you smoke it after you wear it? You know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that was because the origins of the movement really came from hemp, right? And hemp had that very sort of coarse hand that gave people this sort of sense of, oh, organic clothing is going to have that, like, you know, very crunchy feeling. So we moved away from hemp. But now that hemp has been, you know, brought back into favor through the food side and CBD, we're now moving and seeing it again, a resurgence in the fashion space. The issue with hemp is it's a bass fiber. It's a very hard fiber. So to break it down, you still have to use a lot of chemicals um, to get it soft or you have to blend it with other fibers. It's really good for things like shoes and bags. And But when you wear it as clothing, you just got to know you're not going to get that ooh, yummy hand that people are oftentimes longing for. But it's a great fiber. It's UVA and UVB resistant and grows without water and without chemicals. So by default. I also love tensiliacel, which derived from eucalyptus, um, and that's from a company called Lensing. Super soft and drapey. We call it eucalyptus. It's kind of our brand for it because it's derived from the cellulose extracted from managed tree farms of eucalyptus, and then broken down using a non-toxic solvent. And it's got a lot of drape and softness. Um, which is really yummy and amazing. And then I'll just end with saying there's other fibers that are being developed right now out of bio waste or, or food waste, like banana we're, we're bringing to market in next year um, from banana stem. There's also orange that's coming to market, pineapple, um, and you know, other biomass mushrooms, seaweed that's turning into fiber. There's a, a tremendous amount of innovation in our industry right now. And, you know, everybody's rolling their sleeves up to try to look at, you know, what are tomorrow's, you know, f preferred fibers and materials. Marcy, you remind me of uh, a lesson Dennis Waitley taught me, uh, who's, for those younger people as well, one of the most famous sales trainers and mentors in the world. But he said, what we should be doing is planting seeds under trees that we may never sit under. And as one of the first ecopreneurs uh, out there, uh, you know, I want to tell you that, you know, it's much more than sustainability. It's much more than conservation. Sustainability and conservation are not going to solve the problems. And what I like most about what you write about, speak about, teach about, and live about uh, is the innovation side, uh, which I want to encourage many ecopreneurs, philanthropeneurs, uh, uh, the entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs you need to save the world through innovation, not through conservation and sustainability. All conservation and sustainability do, which are extremely important, is buy the entrepreneur enough time to create the solutions for the problems that we created with the plastics and pesticides and all the other things that we did for the best intention of humanity. Uh, but I want to commend you, but also raise the awareness as you are planting seeds under trees we'll never sit under 
in order to effectuate the innovation uh, as you spoke about cotton and hemp and obviously all the other things that we need to do that I want to raise awareness to people like you, Marcy, that we should study and speak with and take that outside view that you have in order to effectuate the innovation to save the world. And you are one and probably will be known as one of those leaders and legends in the ecopreneur space that have saved the world. So I wanted to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for saving us and the world with a better and a bigger perspective on this most necessary as it's much more than eco fashion. It's eco renaissance and of course the first ecopreneur. And thank you so much. Come back and visit us again. Yeah, thanks for having me and uh, check me out at Marcy Zeroff and let's all wear the change we wish to see. So, You're thanks awesome. and thanks, have a great Marcy. day. <laughs> oh, thank my you. God. Enjoy. Dennis Whaley would be proud. <laughs> bye bye. Incredible. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good point. Um, all right, we will uh, bring on our next guest, boys. We have uh, there he is, Stephen. How are you? I'm I'm not sure. I'm not awake yet. So you'll have to ask me in about 10 minutes. You must be on the West Coast. Uh, I'm in the Middle Coast. I'm in Colorado. Oh, nice. That's still. I'm, in the, I'm on the post-earthquake beachfront property coast. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it will be, too. That's why I'm going for Thanksgiving. Nostradamus has predicted that. Uh, so be, beware of Thanksgiving. You might just have oceanfront property, according to my wife. Uh, anyway, <laughs> before then, you got to wear our shoes. Before then, we got to wear our shoes. Yeah, and uh, exactly. I'm here to talk about your, your fun company, uh, comfortable company. And I'm, I'm hoping I pronounce it right. They didn't give me a pronunciation. It's X E R O. So I'm going to guess it's zero shoes. But uh, you got it. Yes, sometimes we, we've been filming a show all week. So my team is overloaded uh, and they usually have me uh, say, say, safe and sound with some great uh, uh, pronunciations. Anyway. You've been all over. I saw you on Shark Tank. Uh, the company is killing it. And the reason that it's killing it is you are what I call one of the Meltzer companies. All you really do is pro provide value. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's you want to provide as much value as it can in the sandals and the shoes and the boots, uh, looking at where we can become better. And, uh, you know, I was wondering, you know, since you are such an exponential company of growth and, and, and this value, Why'd you choose zero uh, in your name with the X-E-R-O? Okay, I'll give you the whole story. So we hired a ridiculously expensive marketing group who came up with a whole bunch of names. Uh, well, let me back up. So when I started the company, which happened somewhat by accident, I had been making these minimalist sandals, pretty much the way humans have been making sandals for about 10,000 years. And a guy who was a coach, a running coach said, you know, if you had a website and treated this sandal making hobby like a business, I'd put you in a book that I'm writing. So I rush home, I pitch this incredible opportunity to my wife who tells me I'm a complete moron. And and it won't make any money. It's a total waste of time. And so I said, yeah, you're probably right. So um, I waited till she went to bed before I built a website. <laughs> and um, and so, but I needed to have a name. And, and I thought, you know, these feel like you're wearing nothing, but just giving you protection, something to hold that protection on your foot. And it looks like nothing. So I called it invisible shoes. But that just didn't seem like something we could brand. So we hired this very expensive marketing team who came up with a bunch of names. I'm going to spell one of them for you. And you tell me if you can pronounce it. Ready? X-O-I-C-S. Zoics. 
Nice. Got me, man. I have no idea. So <laughs> I, said, uh, I said, this is a horrible name. They said, no, you can own it. I said, own it. I can't spell it. So <laughs> I, I was sitting around. Uh, I'm a competitive sprinter still. I was sitting around after track practice one day thinking about what they came up with. And I said, like, I hate that name, but I like the X. And then I just started like ripping. Yeah. I, I got to stop you, man. They, I always tell a story about Accenture. When they went from Anderson Consulting to Accenture, they gave a million. These are the best financial consultants, the most creative minds, right? They gave a contest for a million dollars for the best logo. And they came up with the great. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Similar story. So anyway, I like the X thing and I started thinking about that. And that led me to the idea of zero with a Z. But the idea of having with an X kind of tells the story at the same time. And so that's how we landed on it. And that's what we've been using for 12 years starting next week. Nice. Nice. That, that's really cool. Uh, and obviously, prior to starting this business, you have a marketing background yourself. So I'd love to know how that background and that expertise you've used to brand and, and, and tell the story of Zero to, to everyone, because it is such a new product where yeah. I feel like many of, especially in the, in the athletic shoe wear companies, have been going towards more padding, more arching, more this, more that. You guys are going the other way. So obviously there has to be a message and some sort of education. There. Yes. Well, we're not even going the other way. We're just getting out of the way of the last 50 years. In other words, yeah. if you look at footwear up until roughly 1970, it looked like ours. Or as Dr. Irene Davis from Harvard likes to say, in the 60s, we were running in thin-soled running shoes. We were playing basketball in Chuck Taylors. We weren't seeing the kind of injuries, the number of injuries, or the severity of injuries we're seeing now. So she said on a panel, at a panel discussion I was on at the American College of Sports Medicine, she said to the guys from Brooks and Adidas, she says, what problem were you trying to solve? And why didn't it work? And so we're just going back in time a little bit. And so my background, more specifically than just marketing, is internet marketing. I've been an internet marketer since 1992. Holy crap, that means 30 years. I just realized that. Um, that makes me feel old. So, and, and that was really, yeah, we're all there. So that was really the key was that we started out as a digitally native company. I mean, the first thing I did was make videos, frankly, showing how to rip off our entire business model, how to buy the materials, how to make our product, how to do it yourself. And I put those all over the inner tubes. So there was a period of time in 2009, 2010, where if you did any search for any keyword that I cared about, uh, we had not only the top spot, but usually like 40 of the top 50 search results. So that was the key was just getting out there first and foremost. And then the rest of it is, like you said, is the messaging. I mean, what we're saying is we're helping people rediscover that natural movement is the obvious, better, healthy choice, just the same way natural food is. You know, your feet are, you have more, a quarter of the bones and joints of your whole body in your feet and ankles. They're clearly supposed to move. If you have a traditional athletic shoe, that doesn't let them move. That's not even where your foot bends. So um, we make things that let your foot bend and flex and move the way feet are supposed to bend and flex and move. And similarly, you have more nerve endings in the soles of your feet than anywhere but your fingertips and your lips. This is to tell your body, your nervous system, your brain, and your spinal cord for reflexes how to move efficiently and effectively. And you can't feel anything when you have all that padding underneath your foot. So we make things that are protective and durable, but also give you that ground feedback so you can move effectively and efficiently. And just being able to share that online with video, getting involved in conversations on Facebook groups and various other places, of course, in advertising. I mean, that's the, how we've been spreading the message. 
Stephen, the, the reason I'm such a fan of your product is everything that you just said for the last 30 or, or 60 seconds and, and everything that you've done and put into Zero Shoes aligns with nature, right? Evolutionarily, we've been developing however long you want to go back, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. There's nothing more perfect than nature, right? Our feet are the way they are because they're supposed to be. And here we are designing something that doesn't align with what they're supposed right. to do. So my question to you is when people do buy zero shoes, when they do start getting back to the natural movement, is there a process that they go through? Do they feel some discomfort or the things that happen because, hey, you've been doing it this way, even though it's right. the wrong way for so long. How does that work? It depends on the person. So first of all, I'm going to, because I know some people listening might think this, they think, yeah, but we didn't evolve to run on concrete or do various other things that we do in shoes, to which I say, look, I'm a former all-American gymnast. We didn't evolve to double twisting, double backflips, but hey, I can do one. So we may have evolved in one place, but we can adapt to other things. And so the adaptation depends on what, who you are and what you're doing. If all you're doing is walking, it's usually not a big deal. You can just switch. Or let me say it this way. If you're comfortable walking around barefoot, then you're totally fine walking in a pair of zero shoes. If you're not comfortable walking around barefoot, that's not right. If you don't have the strength to handle walking normally, walking barefoot, there's some really simple things that you can do to kind of wake up the nervous system again. Basically, walk outside, like go to the mailbox or wherever you have to go. Just walk on something that just stimulates your feet just to wake up the nervous system again. Because if you don't give your brain that stimulation from your feet, your brain literally can just shut down for a while. So you just need to reawaken that. Mm -hmm. And then the if you're... Uh, wait, what else was I going to say about that? Oh, so that's step one. Step two is you just want to think about relaxing. And you want to think about landing with your feet underneath your body so you have proper posture and so you're using your muscles ligaments and tendons as the natural springs and shock absorbers and joint protectors and prime movers that they're meant to be so we like to say if you want to start start super slow if you want to start running in particular start really slow either go barefoot because that's going to give you the most feedback or in a pair of zero shoes and go for like a 20 second run, super, super short. See how you feel the next day. If you're not having fun, if you don't feel good, do something different till you're having fun, which usually means just changing your gait slightly. But that's a natural process as well, because basically, if you're getting that feedback, doing it wrong hurts and doing it right feels good. And so if you just play around, experiment with how to move so that it feels right so that you end up looking if you ever watch like a five-year-old kid or a three-year-old kid running they get this really weird expression on their face what's it called um smiling and <laughs> they're having fun and and they also have perfect form i mean that's a whole other story but you want to have that same feeling and so the gate change is natural if you give yourself the time to experiment, but there's some shortcuts, there's some cues that people like me can give you to just accelerate that learning process. But the key thing, people like to think that um, calf pain, Achilles tendonitis is part of the process. It's not, it's totally optional. If you pay attention to your body, if you have these little cues about what to do differently, you can make the transition pretty effortlessly and it can do, you can do it in, I mean, for me, it took two weeks, but I'm a freak. Um, but there's nothing that prevents anyone from being able to walk comfortably very, very quickly and run comfortably within a couple of months tops. In fact, really quick story. Uh, Dr. Isabel Sacco in Brazil just put minimalist footwear, not ours, but a, a, something similar, on the feet of elderly women, 65 plus women who had knee osteoarthritis. She gave them no instructions. She gave them no cues, no tips, no nothing. And they all made the transition, not only very effortlessly and easily, but their knee osteoarthritis was reduced or disappeared went away because they were using their muscles, ligaments, and tendons instead of just pushing force right into their joints by slamming their feet into the ground, which is what happens when you wear something like this. 
Stephen, I love the fact that you call yourself a freak because you encompass uh, uh, the spirit of excellence. And I've surrounded myself with freaks, you know, from Lee Steinberg uh, to Sportsman Marketing to these guys are freaks next to me. I'm a time freak, for example, because I don't listen to other people. And I love uh, the fact that, you know, all of this has evolved in 97 countries and such great success uh, because Thanks. you don't let or listen to even people that love us with their, what I call ignorant arrogance. Love is an ignorant arrogance. It's, we're so afraid for you because we love you so much. We're gonna pretend like we know what the hell we're talking about. Um, and you take the clues and I hear it. And, and I wanna you know, bring this out with great entrepreneurs which is why I have office hours. I wanna point out when people are speaking. I wanna listen to what makes you so special. And what I hear is, you know, everything you do doesn't matter what other people think what's missing or, or, or what you don't want it's it's what these clues have told you for example you're an all-american gymnast the, the one that's intriguing to me is you're one of the world's fastest 50 plus uh, you don't by the way uh, I, you know you were gonna take that guess but uh you know to that matter joey spirit excellence over you know your personal life your professional life and your family life is truly the key to that enjoying consistent, persistent pursuit of your potential. Uh, we appreciate you having on. I just have one Thanks. quick question because we're gonna have to go. What's your hundred? What's your hundred uh, hundred meter time? I'm running about thirteen two right now. I'm fifty nine, and so that's okay, all American time. That's out. <laughs> Dave, what's yours? Nine. <laughs> you'll, you'll break the new world record at sixty. I, I'm gonna have to time myself now. I'm going. I'm going for Steven's record. I'm gonna go for Steven's record. Do it. Do it. <laughs> I'm only 53, but I look older than you. But uh, I'm ready. I'm ready to go, man. So anyway, uh, zero shoes, zero shoes.com with an X, and now we know why it's an X because he's the X factor because nobody believes in himself and others as much as this evolutioning uh, the world of exercise, fitness, and even work. Uh, performance is necessary in all of those and to have the ability. I will tell you, walking barefoot, by the way, not only is so healthy, but it also grounds you. And there is a current that flows from the earth to you. And everybody should walk barefoot every day for that purpose as well. Stephen, we're going to have you back on uh, so we can have more time. I got other shows. Uh, I need to share your spirit with more people and more people need to wear zero shoes. So thank you so Thanks. much. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you, awesome. Stephen. All right, boys, real quick, because I got to jump to the airport. Take away for the day, Michael. Yes, uh, everything in life is 90% preparation, 10% execution. Like Steven said, the right shoes, like Marcy talked about with what she's doing, saving the planet with the right um, textiles and things, and like Dr. Wright talked about. Yeah, I think mine is, is very similar. I know, Dave, you say attention plus intention equals co coincidence. I just found that everybody we spoke to today was putting a lot of attention into their intentions uh, and being more conscious about their decisions. Um, so obviously, you know, we should take time to think before we do anything and see how those things will impact our body, our lives, and obviously the world as a greater whole. Yep. My takeaway is to be ahead of the curve, whether an ecopreneur or a barefoot runner or you know, a web person in 92, uh, you need to understand people will laugh at you, scoff at you, make fun of you, call you a freak, allow yourself to call yourself a freak because it's the freak of the week takeaway. Uh, they will applaud you someday. Not only will they applaud you someday, but what they'll tell you afterwards is I knew you could do it. 
right? I knew you could do it. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm so proud of you. I knew you could do it. I've always been here for you. After, you know, they laugh at you, scoff at you, stab you in the back and do all the nice things that human nature allows us to do through fear of ignorant arrogance. Thank you both so much. Thank you. We will see you soon. We'll call you Mexico on El Sabado. Safe flight. Adios. Safe travels. <laughs> Very cool. Thank you, guys. All right, everyone. You know the drill. We'll be here every day. Most importantly, be kind to your future self and do good deeds. If you missed the training yesterday on patience versus persistence, it's on Spotify. It's on every platform, by the way, the playbook. Download the playbook, get all 21 years of trainings and more, all the encompass education. Be kind to your future self, do good deeds. Thank you so much.